1: Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from
0: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Even if you are not a fan of Regency fiction, you're probably familiar with this whole idea of a woman who is in search of a husband either because her family doesn't have any money or because the money they do have is all settled on a male relative, leaving nothing for the family's women. It's such a running theme in fiction that's either from or about the whole Regency era that it's easy to start imagining that every upper-class woman's life worked that way. So today we're going to talk about a woman whose life defied that whole convention. Her name was Anne Lister, and she was not looking for a husband at all. She was looking for a wife. Anne Lister was also a prolific diarist. She wrote more than 6,000 pages and 4 million words over her lifetime. And about a sixth of those words were written in code. And these coded sections, she wrote about her relationships with other women so frankly and with so much detail that when these coded sections were first decoded, people wondered if they were a hoax. It probably didn't help that in addition to all of the sexually explicit parts, the lives of Anne and her social and romantic circles are really, really full of drama. It's like if Jane Austen uh, met Sarah Waters. So we are not going to get into the details of Anne's sex life, but heads up that if this episode piques your interest and you decide to go read her diaries for yourself, you will learn a lot, a lot about it. Uh, Also, just a heads up that later on this episode, we have a brief mention of a rape.
1: Anne Lister was born in Halifax, West Yorkshire, on April 3rd, 1791. Her parents were Jeremy Lister and Rebecca Battle. Anne's father had served with the British in the American Revolutionary War, and Anne was one of six children, four boys and two girls.
0: The Listers were part of the landed gentry, and Jeremy's older brother, James, had inherited the estate of Shibden Hall. He was living there with his and Jeremy's sister, who was also named Anne, There are a lot of ands in this story. Shibden Hall had an income from rents on the cottages and the farms that were part of the estate. And this was large enough of an income that the family did not have to work, but not large enough to support a particularly lavish lifestyle apart from not having to work.
1: Anne's immediate family didn't have much money of their own. Anne's three brothers were next in line to inherit Shibden Hall, but Anne herself was not expecting any kind of inheritance. When she left her boarding school in 1804, it was her aunt Anne who was paying her way.
0: Anne's boarding school was the Manor School in York, and that is where she had her first romantic relationship, which was with another student named Eliza Rain. Anne and Eliza shared an attic room at the school that was nicknamed The Slope.
1: The rest of the school's boarding students were housed in a dormitory. And the reason for Anne and Eliza being housed in the attic is not specifically documented. But there are some likely reasons. For Anne, it was probably because of money. The school's other boarding students were generally much wealthier than she was. And it's also possible that the school's staff wanted to keep Anne separate from the other girls because of her behavior.
0: She was stubborn and rebellious and an unladylike tomboy. This whole making her live in the attic thing because she didn't have any money reminds me of A Little Princess starring Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or,
1: yeah, that one, the, it shows up in various places. It's almost tropey.
0: Yeah, well, I think that that's part of the reason why people were like, are these diaries real? <laughs> <laughs> in addition to, women definitely wouldn't write about this stuff. There's the, and kids are living in the attic because they don't have any money. So, meanwhile... Eliza was the daughter of an Indian woman and an English doctor who had served with the British East India Company. Her parents had gotten married in India, but their marriage wasn't registered back in Britain. So Eliza and her sister Jane were both considered to be illegitimate. Eliza was wealthy, so the money thing was not why she was in the attic. She was probably housed in the attic due to a combination of racism and concerns about her supposedly out-of-wedlock birth. Living together in the Slope,
1: Anne and Eliza developed an intense friendship that evolved into a romantic relationship. After about six months, they had exchanged rings and promised to marry one another after they finished school.
0: They also worked out a code that combined mathematical and zodiac symbols with Latin and Greek letters so that they could write each other love letters without being discovered. It was really probably Eliza, who already spoke multiple languages, that created the code itself. Anne would later use this code to write all the details, I mean, really all of them, about her relationships with other women in her diary.
1: After Anne and Eliza had been together for about two years, someone intercepted a package that one of them sent to the other, and their relationship was at that point discovered. Anne was immediately asked to leave the school and told that she could only come back after Eliza had left. So Anne went back home to Halifax where she was tutored by the Reverend Samuel Knight.
0: But this physical separation didn't stop Anne and Eliza's relationship. They kept writing each other letters this time without raising anybody's suspicions. Eliza also came to stay with Anne for every school break, and Anne's first entry in her first diary, which is dated August 11th of 1806, is from the end of one of these visits. It begins simply, "Eliza left us." By the
1: autumn of 1808, Anne was getting restless. She was 17 at that point, and she had become a lot more flagrant and public in her stubborn tomboyishness. She had also started giving flute lessons to an unmarried woman named Maria Alexander. And this was a connection that her family did not think was appropriate. Maria was over 30, and her unmarried older brothers were also living at home. Anne was also openly flirtatious with Maria, including in front of Eliza when she took her along on one of these flute lesson visits.
0: In addition to disregarding Eliza's feelings and all of this, Anne also started more and more willfully disregarding social expectations about how girls should behave. She asked to go to Portsmouth with the Alexanders without a chaperone on a trip that would also involve Maria's older, unmarried brothers. She ignored her curfew and she visited the Alexanders even after her family had forbidden her to do so. When her family finally gave her permission to spend two nights with the Alexanders over New Year's Eve, she stayed there for two weeks. And it wasn't just with the Alexanders that
1: Anne willfully defied what was expected of a young woman. She started a neighborhood scandal after she went with a Captain Byrne to his chamber alone on more than one occasion to look at his pistols. Anne's behavior had become so notorious that people in the neighborhood started calling her Gentleman Jack.
0: So through all of this, Anne was still having a relationship with Eliza, and her behavior was causing Eliza more and more distress. And this was particularly true after Anne told Eliza that 21 was much too young for the two of them to live together, and they should wait until they were more like 27. They were both 17 at this point, so Anne was basically saying, we'll live together in a decade. Eliza's letters to Anne at this point became increasingly anxious and sorrowful, And by 1809, she was asking for reassurance that the two of them would ever be together at all.
1: In 1810, a tragedy struck the Lister family that changed Anne's life significantly. We're going to discuss that after we first pause for a little sponsor break.
0: Lister's oldest brother John died during an influenza outbreak. John had been Anne's closest sibling, and they'd already lost two of their other brothers. So instead of being one of six siblings, Anne was now one of 3, with only her brother Samuel and her sister Marion still living. John's death meant that Anne was now
1: second in line to inherit Shibden Hall rather than third. She started to consider what it would mean if she inherited the estate and what she would need to be able to do to run it herself. To do so in the lifestyle she wanted, she would need more money than Shibden Hall could provide. The solution was to marry well, and for Anne, that meant marrying a rich and ideally noble woman.
0: Eliza finished her studies at the manor school that same year, and she went to live with a cousin in Halifax to wait for the day that she and Anne could start a home together. With Eliza no longer at the school, Anne went back. It's possible that Anne was still thinking that she could make Eliza her wife. After all, Eliza was an heiress. She really had a lot of money that was going to come to her when she turned 21. But not long after all of this, when Anne became second in line to inherit Shibden Hall, Eliza's family experienced its own tragedy.
1: Eliza's sister, Jane, had gotten married to Lieutenant Henry Bolton and moved back to India with him. But he had abandoned her. Her inheritance had become his when they married, so she had nothing of her own. Arrangements were made for her to come back to Halifax, but she had to travel for months on a ship unaccompanied. She was imprisoned after arriving in France because she couldn't prove her British citizenship. After all of this, she arrived in England pregnant with a child that could not have been her husband's that was almost certainly the result of a rape.
0: So now that she was second in line to inherit Shibden Hall, Anne started to care a lot more about other people's opinions of her. This included the opinions of two of the day students at the manor school, one was Isabella Norcliffe, who is referred to as Tib in Anne's journals. Isabella and Anne had started a relationship, but then Isabella had in- had introduced Anne to Mariana Belcom. Of all of the women Anne was involved with during her lifetime, she was probably the most in love with Mariana. Anne worried about how Eliza's so-called fallen sister would affect Mariana and Isabella's opinions of her. Anne kept her
1: engagement to Eliza secret from Mariana and Isabella. And she didn't tell Eliza about her romantic involvement with the two young women back at school. But it was obvious to Eliza that Anne was forming new relationships and that she was excluding her from them. When Anne visited Mariana or Isabella, Eliza was not invited.
0: As Eliza approached her 21st birthday, which was when she would actually receive her inheritance, she found herself with her own suitor. This was Captain John Alexander, who insisted that this had nothing to do with her money. Whether that's true, uh, not really sure, but Eliza still considered herself to be Anne's wife, She was also increasingly worried, though, that Anne was never going to make good on her promise that they would live together one day. So she wrote to Anne to get reassurance about this, their future together Anne didn't answer. Instead, Anne, who could be pretty manipulative
1: in her relationships, sent letters to Eliza's guardian, William Duffin, as well as to Captain Alexander and gave each of them a distorted version of what was going on. The result was that the captain went to William Duffin to demand to marry Eliza, but Duffin refused.
0: Even though none of this was any of her own doing, Eliza found herself branded as a temptress and she was ostracized. She was so distraught over everything that she took a trip to Bristol to try to recover Meanwhile, Anne went on her own trip to Bath with with Isabella and Mariana until it became clear that she just did not have the money or the social connections to keep up with the two of them there. So Anne went back home. On
1: June 19th, 1813, as 22-year-old Anne was on her way home, she learned that her last surviving brother, Samuel, had drowned. Anne was now the one who would inherit Shibden Hall. And it became even more important to her to have a respectable life and reputation. Although her brother had died during military service, he had drowned on a pleasure boat. It was not considered to be a very noble or distinguished death. And Anne thought that she needed to make the family respectable again and to conduct herself in a way that would bring honor to the estate of Shibden
0: Hall. Anne started cutting ties with Eliza. She didn't invite Eliza to Sam's funeral or answer her repeated requests to return her letters and gifts and engagement ring. Anne eventually invited Eliza on a trip that she was taking with Isabella, but Eliza got really sick early into the journey and went home again once she was better.
1: Eliza was distraught over Anne's rejection. And not long after she got home, she had an unexpected visit from her sister Jane, who by this time was struggling with both alcoholism and tuberculosis and was supporting herself through sex work. Jane also seemed to be emotionally unstable, and when Eliza started to look for a place in London to have her committed, gossip began to spread that she was doing all of this for her own personal gain.
0: Eliza went through cycles of depression and agitation until Mariana Belcom asked her father, who ran an asylum to intervene. Eliza was temporarily committed, and from that point, she was in and out of asylums until 1816, when she was declared insane. Eliza spent the rest of her life in Mariana Belcom's father's asylum, and she died there in 1860 at the age of 68. She had a will. Originally, she had left everything to Anne, but she had rewritten it to leave everything to her former suitor, Captain Alexander, who she eventually seemed to regret not having married. But this new will was ruled invalid, and so what was left of her fortune was claimed by the crown. As for Eliza's sister,
1: her son died in 1817 at the age of six, and in 1819, her husband was killed in action. Even though he had abandoned her, Jane was still legally his wife, so what was left of her fortune reverted back to her. This was unfortunately not in time to help her, however. Jane's tuberculosis was quite advanced at that time, and she died in November of 1819, only a few months after her husband's death.
0: As all of this was happening with Eliza being committed, she obviously lived much longer after that, and suffered a rejection of her own. Although she'd never stopped having physical relationships with other women, she was still passionately in love with Marianna Belcom. She had been making plans for the two of them to have a life together. But in March of 1816, Marianna's family found a suitor for her. They arranged things so that Anne, who was visiting, would be staying with neighbors instead of at their house. And then they secreted Marianna away to get married to Charles Lawton.
1: Anne was devastated. She made Mariana promise that they would still live together once Charles died. And since he was 20 years older than Mariana was, she hoped that that was going to happen soon. In the meantime, the two women did not stop seeing each other and Anne even lived with Mariana and Charles for the first six months of their marriage. When Charles realized that Mariana and Anne were physically involved, he banished Anne from the house, but eventually he did allow the two women to see one another again.
0: This didn't work out so well for Anne, though. Later on in her life, she contracted a sexually transmitted infection for Mariana and then passed it on to at least one other partner. She eventually went to Paris to try to seek medical treatment for this infection, but there was not really a cure for whatever it was at this point. So she probably carried it for the rest of her life.
1: After all of this drama, Anne's life started to settle down a little. We're going to talk more about that after we
0: have another little sponsor break.
1: Explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Anne Lister never completely forgave herself for betraying Eliza. And she visited her in the asylum from time to time until her death. After her own heartbreak with Mariana, Anne started to take a more practical approach to finding a wife. She started looking for somebody who would have enough money to support the lifestyle that she wanted, but not necessarily someone who provoked that same all-consuming love that she had had for Mariana.
1: She also became more practical in the rest of her affairs. By 1817, she had moved into Shibden Hall with her Aunt Anne and Uncle James, and she wanted to prove to them that she was capable of managing the estate herself. Even though she was the heir, there were other branches of the Lister family, and she wanted to rule out any
0: possibility
1: that the estate would wind up settled on them instead.
0: Anne had been keeping her diaries on a messy collection of paper scraps until this point, but she abandoned that in 1817 and started writing in large, bound journals, meticulously dating her entries and recording all of her daily habits. Anne's daily writing included the weather, how she'd slept, what she was learning. She was determined to continue her education, and so she got up at 5 a.m. every day to study, and then she kept records of all of her progress in her diary.
1: She also used these diaries to keep up with what was going on at Shibden Hall and the surrounding neighborhood. She kept track of all her purchases and her interactions with tenants and workers. She made notes about local gossip and quarrels among the gentry. She also noted what was going on in the rest of the world. The same way that Samuel Pepys' diary created an important record of life in London and major world events from 1660 to 1669, Anne Lister's diary really created a record of Halifax and the greater world from 1817 to 1840.
0: She also became a lot more reserved in her behavior and her habits while continuing to defy gender expectations. She dressed in black, which wasn't a color that women typically wore unless they were in mourning. But it was a color that men often wore while traveling. Anne was sort of patterning her wardrobe around the idea of a distinguished conservative gentleman traveler. She didn't wear trousers, though. These were black dresses that had a somewhat more masculine air. She also made it a point not to gossip about people anymore. So, like, that business where she was writing misleading letters to people to try to get her way, like, that really cut a lot back. I'm so good. I'm so delighted to hear it.
1: Uh When she was about 26, Anne attracted the attentions of a Mr. Montague, but she did not reciprocate. On January 29th, 1821, she wrote in her diary that she had burned all of his farewell verses so that, quote, no trace of any man's admiration may remain. She went on to say, quote, "I love and only love the fairer sex, and thus beloved by them in turn, my heart revolts from any other love than theirs
0: in July of eighteen twenty two Anne and her aunt took a tour of North Wales and they visited past podcast subjects, Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, the ladies of Lungothlin, on the twenty third she met Sarah Ponsonby at Plas Newid, which was their home. Eleanor was ill that day and was asleep during Anne's visit." She exchanged some letters with the ladies of Lungothlin later on after she returned home.
1: In January of 1826, Anne's uncle James died, and Anne inherited Shibden Hall, under the condition that her Aunt Anne and her father could still live on the property and collect portions of the rent. Aunt Anne continued to manage the domestic world of the household, while Anne was responsible for the day-to-day matters of managing the estate which she did with the help of a steward for the agricultural work and an agent for the industrial work
0: she also got to work trying to improve the estate she had two goals in mind to provide the family with an ongoing comfortable income and to situate the estate so that it would be worth more when it was passed on to another heir Her extensive self-education over the past decade or so really paid off in this. She had developed a working knowledge of science, engineering, and business, as well as the industries that were growing up in the area, including coal, timber, and stone.
1: She also began traveling extensively all over Europe as she continued to look for a suitable wife. She had no trouble finding love interests. When she met someone she thought might return her interest, she would bring up a book or a play that had subtle or overt themes of love between women and see how the other woman responded. And this led to a lot of flings, but not really to any long-term attachment. It was back home in Halifax that Ann Lister finally found a woman to spend the rest of her life with. And that woman was Anne Walker, an heiress who lived on a nearby estate
0: her method of finding potential love interests is like the modern equivalent would be walking up to somebody and and asking them whether they like Tegan and Sarah. Like, this is sort of the uh, Regency equivalent of gaydar conversation. <laughs> In 1832... Anne Lister had started working with an architect named John Harper to try to improve Shibden Hall's architecture and its grounds. She was a really avid walker, so she had added a wilderness garden complete with waterfalls and a small chaumiere, which is a thatch roof hut. And this hut became her retreat while she con- while she courted Anne Walker.
1: Anne Walker, for her part, was wary of Anne Lister. Ann Lister made no secret of the fact that she was interested in Ann Walker's money, and Ann Walker knew Ann Lister was not in love with her. But by 1834, both of the Ann's were living at Shibden Hall, and on Easter Sunday of that year, they exchanged rings with one another and then took communion together at Holy Trinity Church in Goodramgate, in York. They lived from that point on as a married couple, including renting a pew together in the front row of their parish church.
0: Anne Walker's money funded a lot of the work that Anne Lister was planning at Shibden Hall. Over the next few years, improvements included a Norman Tower to house the library, a grand staircase in the entryway, and a set of tunnels so that the household staff could get from place to place without being seen. Anne Lister also decided to try her hand at managing a coal mining operation rather than leasing the rights to someone else and earning money that way. Ann Walker's money funded the sinking of two coal pits on Shibden Hall's property. The two Anns also continued
1: traveling as much as their time and Ann Walker's money allowed. Ann Lister was really the one driving these trips. She had way more wanderlust than Ann Walker did. These weren't laid-back pleasure trips either. Their travels were daring and unconventional. Anne Lister was an avid mountaineer, and she summited multiple peaks in the Pyrenees. They took horseback journeys into territory that was really more often home to military units than to unescorted ladies. In
0: 1836, Anne Lister's father died. She was at that point 100% in control of Shibden Hall. I think this means that her Aunt Anne had also died, but I could not find confirmation of when that happened. In 1837, the two Anne's wrote out wills to each other, and each of them left the other one all of her possessions and wealth on the condition that the surviving Anne never married.
1: In 1839, they left on a two-year trip through Scandinavia, the Low Countries, and Russia. The following year, Anne Lister contracted some kind of fever while touring the Caucasus. In her last diary entry, dated August thirteenth, 1840, she doesn't mention anything odd about her health. But on September 20th, she died at the age of 49. She had apparently requested to be buried at home in Halifax, so Ann Walker had her body embalmed and accompanied it on a six-month journey home. Ann Lister was finally buried at Halifax Parish Church.
0: Their relationship had not always been particularly happy, uh, I just I, I imagine Ann Walker just kind of gritting her teeth through some of this travel where, when she really wanted to be at home with their nice garden in the waterfall in the library at Shibden Hall. But Ann Lister's death and this long journey home with her body really took a toll on Ann Walker's health. In 1842, her sister and a doctor conspired to have her declared insane and committed to an asylum so that they could take over her fortune, including Shibden Hall, this was temporary in terms of the ownership of Shibden Hall. When Anne Walker died in 1854, the estate reverted back to the Lister family.
1: Anne Lister's diaries stayed in the family library until the late 19th century. John Lister's parents had inherited the estate when he was eight, and he had been publishing transcriptions of the plain language portions of Anne's diaries in the Halifax Guardian. With the help of Arthur Burrell, he cracked the code and discovered what Anne had been writing about all that time.
0: John Lister was horrified. I mean, I, I can't stress it, they are really explicit. <laughs> Uh, And apart from there being really explicit, homosexuality between men was illegal in Britain at the time. And although homosexuality between women wasn't specifically outlawed, it was highly stigmatized. So John Lister thought about burning these diaries when he realized what was in them. Ultimately, I think fortunately, he locked them away again. It's been speculated that John Lister also had relationships with other men and that this desire to keep the diaries hidden was partly by motivated by self-preservation and basically being afraid of outing himself.
1: Until the mid 20th century, most of the archivists and historians who examined Ann Lister's diaries stayed away from their explicit content in their published work. Dr. Phyllis Ramsden worked with the journals in the 1960s and wound up mostly establishing a chronology and focusing on Anne's travels. A graduate student named Vivian Ingham was part of this work as well and was working on a Ph.D. dissertation, but she died before that work was complete.
0: By the 1980s, at least some of the stigma surrounding lesbian relationships was starting to fade. And in 1988, historian Helena Whitbread published I Know My Own Heart, The Diaries of Anne Lister, 1791 to 1840. This volume included both decoded and transcribed material from the diaries. She published a second collection in 1992. So these two volumes obviously do not cover the entire diary. That is thousands and thousands of pages. But they did make some of the decoded material widely available for the first time. And really, Parts of the rest of it as well, even when she was not writing in code, Ann Lister's handwriting is really hard to read. There are a lot of scans of pages from the diary on the Internet. It is very difficult. And on top of the very difficult to read part, she used a lot of, a lot, a lot of made up abbreviations. So it could be hard even when you could read what she was saying to figure out exactly what she was talking about. The thing, too, to consider, right, when you're looking at
1: someone's diaries, and we've established that she really notated everything, is that a lot of it is probably very boring weather and, and like, transaction talk. So (laughs) that would be why probably most people would not want to read a list of the temperatures in Halifax (laughs) over the course of several years. Uh Ann Lister's diaries are one of the longest in the English language, and they demonstrate how she really was ahead of her time. She successfully managed and improved on Shibden Hall at a time when it was not common at all for a woman to be the head of a household in this way. She held her own in the overwhelmingly male-dominated and cutthroat coal industry. She found a way to live with a lot more independence and autonomy than many women, even other wealthy white women, were able to do at this time.
0: The diaries also show how she was ahead of her time in terms of her relationships with other women, to the point that she's sometimes described as the first modern lesbian. There have obviously been same-sex relationships throughout recorded history, but the idea of a lesbian identity, or the more general idea that having relationships with someone of the same sex is intrinsically connected to who you are as a person, is way more recent in the Western world. According to the
1: Oxford English Dictionary, the word lesbianism was first used in writing to describe homosexual attraction between women in 1870, with lesbian first used in the same way 20 years later. And using the word lesbian to describe a person instead of an attraction or a sex act is even later than that. That's first used in writing in 1925. And that same thing is true for most of the synonyms. So, sapphism, meaning homosexual relations between women, dates back to 1890. But sapphist didn't arrive until the 1920s. And even then, it indicated a dysfunction more than an identity. All of this was decades after Ann Lister's death in 1840.
0: Even though she was living before language really existed to describe herself, Anne Lister did seem to have a sense that her attraction to other women was an intrinsic part of herself. Her diaries document a lot of self-reflection and introspection about why she was attracted to women and what that meant about her. Anne is also completely accepting of who she is in these diaries, although she does document some incidents of being harassed uh, for what she was wearing or how she lived her life. This is really different from a lot of other early lesbian literature. Like, if you read The Well of Loneliness, which is generally marked as the first lesbian novel in English, it is tragic and sad and full of just a lot of self-doubt and shame, and there is none of that <laughs> in Anne Lister's life. Uh, Probably because she lived before lesbian was really an identity, because, like, the coalescence of that identity was happening at the same time as a lot of criminalization was happening and stigma. And when those two things, like, came about in parallel with each other, that meant you can see uh, its effect on people's, um, like, sense of themselves and mental health and all of that in early lesbian literature.
1: This sets Anne and her diaries apart from some of the other women that we've talked about on the show, who definitely had long-term and loving relationships with other women, but lived before the idea of a lesbian identity really existed in Western culture. So examples would be the aforementioned ladies of Langlothan and Jane Addams.
0: Yeah, Jane Addams' life overlapped the evolution of... A lesbian identity, but this isn't something that she wrote about in any of her surviving journals or papers or anything, so we know a lot less about how she conceived of herself. It's easy to assume <laughs> <laughs> what she would have thought about herself, but we also have uh, other examples of people we do know about who lived at a time when an identity was evolving and were like, I don't feel like that word applies to me. Like, we saw that with Sylvia Rivera and the word transgender. She was like, I'm not sure that's me. Uh, I have another person on my short list for a future episode, maybe, who was a, a vaudeville female impersonator that similarly lived at a time when gay became an, a, a, like more coalesced into an identity for men and was similarly like, I don't think that's me, even though he exclusively had relationships with other men for his whole life. So anyway, because of all this, In 2011, the United Kingdom formally recognized the historical and cultural value of Ann Lister's diaries, and they were added to the UNESCO Memory of the World Register. Their entry on the UK Memory of the World Register page reads in part, quote, "...the diaries include a wealth of information about politics, business, estate management, religion, education and reading, science, medicine, travel, and local and national events." as this important area of Yorkshire experienced the rapid effects of the Industrial Revolution, seen from the viewpoint of an extremely well-educated and pioneering, should probably say woman here, but there seems to be a word missing, It is her comprehensive and painfully honest account of lesbian life and reflections on her nature, however, which have made these diaries unique. They have shaped and continue to shape the direction of UK gender studies and women's history. Her story reminds me a lot of the same exact kinds of um, squabbles and petty backbiting that I lived through in middle school, but with much higher stakes. We We were not having people confined to asylums in middle school when we were sending snipey, backbitey, mean girl letters to each other.
1: Yeah, I think where I I have a moment where I turn on Anne Lister <laughs> is the letter where she kind of contrives some some poor things to happen to Eliza by sort of betraying her and making stuff up.
0: Yeah, she That's could be really like, manipulative mm, for sure. Yeah. I also have some listener mail.
1: I'm so delighted. Can you share it?
0: I sure can. This email comes from Liz, and it follows our Unearthed in 2017 episodes and the part where we mentioned a privy at Paul Revere House. Uh, And she writes, uh, The real version of events is actually cooler, in my opinion, than the story the media picked up and misreported. This is another correction about that. The privy we found actually dates to the 17th century, at least 100 years prior to Paul Revere's residence at 19 North Square in Boston's North End. It's also associated not with the building Paul Revere inhabited, but the neighboring house, now called the Pierce Hitchborn House. The City of Boston Archaeology Program was originally contacted about doing an archaeological assessment of the side yard next to the house, as they will be doing some construction in future years. We initially were just looking to see what was down there, expecting to find only 18th-century deposits associated with Paul Revere's cousin, Nathaniel Hichborn, who occupied the house from 1781, and later 19th-century deposits from its later owners. Imagine our surprise when we found the first intact 17th-century deposit in Boston, uh, found for several decades. Because Boston has such a long occupation and therefore an equally long history of construction, it is not very common to find undisturbed 17th-century sites. Every time a building is renovated, a trench is dug, a privy moved, etc., there's disturbance in earlier deposits, usually resulting in mixed fills that can't really tell us too much definitive information about the people who lived there. So any intact 17th century deposit in Boston is a reason for excitement. This particular site may be associated with Moses Pierce, a glazier who bought the original house, and may also be associated with John Jeffs, who built the Paul Revere House in 1680. Um... She sent some pictures uh, from the dig. So basically, the thing that we described as the privy at the Paul Revere house uh, is not actually at the Paul Revere's house. The Paul Revere's house is older than Paul Revere uh, living in the area and also explains why uh, I didn't find any of this when I was doing that episode. So the way that our Unearthed episodes work is that I keep up with news about... um, all kinds of unearthed things throughout the year. And then when I can't find, uh, when there's not a lot of uh, clear information or a link to an original paper and the original news reporting, I try to find other stuff. But when I tried to find other stuff about the Paul Revere Privy, I was searching for Paul Revere Privy, which is not, Whose privy it was. So I basically <laughs> found a whole bunch of inaccurate news articles all confirming this idea that it was the Paul Revere privy and saying nothing else substantive about it. So thank you, Liz, for uh, sending us all kinds of information and pictures about that. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, or at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com Myst and History. We're on Twitter at MissedInHistory. History. Our Pinterest and our Instagram names, Mist and History, all those places. Our website is mistinhistory.com where you can find show notes about all the episodes that Holly and I have done together, and you will find an archive of every episode we have ever done. Uh, so you can do all that and so much more at our website, which is mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Live on NFL Network, ESPN 2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Zumo Play.